Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the latest on COVID-19 and what the government is doing to help Canadians get through this coronavirus. Harvey Weinstein sentenced to 23 years. And the Conservatives are saying the Liberals and Bloc are hooking up in order to kibosh further investigation into the SNC-Lavalin scandal. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, this morning the federal government announced that uh, there would be a billion dollars in a uh, coronavirus fund in order to help the, res- the uh, provinces respond to uh, obviously this ongoing situation, both from a health concern and an economic concern. Uh, Here's what the Prime Minister had to say earlier on today. Our government will be creating a billion dollar COVID-19 response fund, which will provide money to the provinces and territories to deal with preparation and mitigation for the virus. I want all premiers and all Canadians to know our government is here for you. We will make sure you have everything you need. We know uh, that Canada is uh, in a good position so far, both fiscally and with a strong health uh, health uh, system that has uh, managed to slow the spread of virus in Canada. Uh, but we are always ready to mo- do more. We will be there to support provinces. We'll be there to support businesses. We will be there to support Canadians. Well, it certainly sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, what does it all mean? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the government offering this billion dollars to provinces and such? It seems to be uh, that we are certainly ahead of this game, more so than the United States. Um, hard to say, uh, but I'll deal with that in a second. I say that because you know there's more cases, but then... They're, they're ten times larger. There's 330 yeah. million people, and um, and they have a very very small number of cases, and uh, and we do too. <laughs> and uh, I think it's I, I'm not sure we're ahead of the states. I think Canada and the, and the U.S. are both ahead of certainly China and certainly South Korea and certainly Italy, uh, but that could be just luck. Uh, don't know. But in terms of the the money, um, I'm going to give you a very contradictory answer. It's a billion bucks, which sounds like a huge amount of money to the average person. It is to me too. But it's actually very small change uh, in a country of two trillion GDP, and um, uh, and it's spread over ten provinces. Having said that, so that sounds like I'm criticizing him. I'm not. Um, I think it was designed more to uh, as a, a symbolic gesture to everybody. Don't worry, the government is here, and uh, we're putting a billion bucks down, which um, uh, and more will follow if necessary. And and I say. I mean, a billion bucks isn't very much as a percentage of GDP, as a percentage of health care. Half of that money is going to the provinces. Well, there's 10 provinces. So, you know, you divide that up, and each province is getting, what, $100 million, $50 million? Not very much. But I'm not suggesting they should have got more. There's very few cases in Canada. And secondly, I'm not saying that down the road that the government shouldn't be putting more money into health care. Um, I've made that argument over and over, in fact, talking to you, that this, this going after universal pharmacare to give free drugs to high-income people like me is, is mad when we've got people on gurneys in the hallways of hospitals. We need more money in the health care system in Canada, and it's not to give free drugs to high-income people like Superior Court judges and medical doctors and so forth. Um, but this announcement today, I think, was to demonstrate 
to individual citizens to demonstrate to the to the to the premiers and to all the people in healthcare that the federal government is going to be there to put more money in if and when is needed and uh, so he's, it was meant as a a reassurance to everybody um, that uh, resources are there and available and that's that's a good thing so what are the challenges for Canada moving forward um, I think that um, and I have to be very careful because you know I'll get hate mail for saying this but I, I want to say what you know people aren't saying anymore there is no cure for this we don't have a we don't have a, a vaccine yeah they're working on it I'm confident that they will have one doctor I think his name is fauci very, very distinguished infectious, one of the leading infectious disease um, experts in the United States, the head of the NIH, National Institute of Health. And he said at the microphone at the press conference at the White House, uh, I think it was two days ago, he believes that there will be, uh, they're already testing and working on vaccines, but they've got to go through all the testing on animals, et cetera, et cetera. And he said they'll have one by next spring. And, uh, but there isn't one right now. So what we're doing is the right thing. The moment we find somebody, who has tested positive, we isolate them. And that's a very, very prudent thing to do because at the end of the day, it may sound very old-fashioned. You know, they use that in the Middle Ages, literally. But if you don't have a vaccine and you don't have a cure, the only way you can uh, deal with something that's infectious, we're not talking somebody with a broken leg, you know, you don't spread a broken leg to somebody just because you walk by them. These are infectious viruses. It's the only way to, to, to stop them. Um, from spreading rapidly is to isolate the person or persons who are have been found to have one. And that's what we're doing. Whether we're doing it uh, quickly enough uh, is something we can debate. I mean, it took a long time for Canada to cancel flights to Italy. I thought we should have canceled them the moment Italy became a hotspot. And maybe the government should have done it. You know, we should be more aggressive like Singapore did and Hong Kong did and just said, look, we're not going to allow people in from countries that are designated high risk. And I know it's you know it's seen as is not very sensitive, but I actually think it's extremely sensitive to everybody who doesn't want to get sick, and and so I think there's things we can do beyond the and that's why there was only I say only a billion dollars because healthcare if anybody wants the big picture uh, in Canada we spend uh, this is from Kaihai Canadian Institute of Health Information we spend about a, a quarter of a trillion dollars a year which is two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year in healthcare, and uh, and uh, and so. In this instance, because there's no cure yet, there's no vaccine, um, I think what we're doing now is, you know, testing, and the moment we find someone, we isolate them. And that's that's a low-tech solution. It's not very expensive either, by the way. You've already got the healthcare infrastructure in place. And I think what they're doing is prudent. And um, and 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 so we're going to keep doing that until we see, you know, and, and, until and unless the numbers break out and become much, much larger, uh, similar to Italy. Uh, what is this $1 billion going to be spent on? Uh, where does the money go? Well, he said, and I dug down, I looked at the press release, uh, up from the government. So, I mean, it has to be true, right? I mean, they issued it. And they said of the billion, $500 million will go to the provinces. Well, there's 10 provinces. <laughs> so, you know, 10 into 500 million goes 50 million each. Okay, they're not. It's not going to be equal. You know, PEI is not going to get the same amount as Ontario because Ontario is a lot, a lot bigger. Okay, I get that. But still, 50 million, 500 million amortized over 10 provinces with 38 million people is just not very much money. But again, I, I think it's more the importance of it is more symbolic, and that'll go into the healthcare system. 
and uh, you know, I mean, it'll get swallowed up without, and no one will even notice it. And then another 250 million, they said, is going into research, but they didn't specify whether that's research to develop uh, more rapid uh, testing um, instrumentation or methodologies, or putting more into looking for a vaccine. They didn't say. And so that's 500 million plus 250 million, and they didn't say where the other quarter of a million, <laughs> quarter of a billion was going. Uh, so I'm not sure. That's why I said, I mean, knowing the numbers, just again to give a big picture, the government of Canada, the government of Canada, spends about a third of a trillion dollars a year. It spends 300, and I think the current figure is 350 billion, which is a third of a trillion. So um, the the billion bucks in the grand scheme of government spending is not, shall we say, gargantuan. It's very small. But again, I'm not, I not, don't want anyone to interpret that to mean, to suggest that, I, uh, that to, to believe that I'm suggesting it's, it's inadequate. Given the small number of cases, I think it was the appropriate response. And they're watching to see if it gets bigger and requires a more aggressive response. I mean, I would much prefer they do that than to rush in and throw gazillions at it, and then it turns out after that there was no need to do that. And um, I think we have the prudent watchfulness, and, and of course our health care system and our doctors and our hospitals are on high alert everywhere. I mean, everywhere. They're testing people. They're watch Everyone's watching everybody to see if they have sniffles or colds and then getting tested. So I think that we've got a hypervigilant system right now. That's a good thing. And and the doctors are on high alert, and we are isolating people once we find they are uh, infected with the coronavirus. And so I I don't think that the uh, that the uh, the approach taken thus far can be uh, criticized. The, the the only criticism I already mentioned it, but it's more on the outside is I think we could put more restrictions on uh, people coming into the country from any hotspot from any country that where we know there's problems. On that note, on that note, we've certainly seen uh, other countries handle this in their own way when it comes to to quarantine and such. Uh, Canada has um, uh, taken the self isolation uh, method. Uh, is there any reason to see or to think that that would change, where all of a sudden it would become a mass isolation? Uh, yeah. Are we going there? Um. We're moving in that direction. Whether or not, I mean, this government, I don't think this government uh, is enthusiastic about that approach. Uh, There's no evidence that they are enthusiastic. Having said that, Scott, if it did break out, and I mean by break out where large numbers, it started to be announced that large numbers were infected, then the heat, the pressure, the unbelievable pressure on the government to, quote, do something, stop this right now, would be so overwhelming that I think that they would take much more draconian measures like the government of Italy, like Singapore, like Hong Kong. Some of these uh, uh, governments have taken extremely draconian measures. Right now in Italy, I mean, as we know, they've quarantined the whole country. They're now discussing closing down all retail stores and establishments with the exception of grocery stores, bars, restaurants, everything. And... Um, and that's in addition to the quarantine. I mean, I, I think it's a kind of overkill because if everybody's quarantined and you can't move around, well, then you don't have to worry about going to stores. Uh, but I'm not sure of the mechanics and the and the you know the the nitty gritty of how they're doing it. But to answer your larger question, I I think that the government is being prudent because they're doing this as a staged approach, 
and they will escalate their uh, um, intervention if it becomes uh, necessary. And, uh, and, and so far, so far, we've been very fortunate. When mm. you look at the total size of the number of the population in Canada and the United States, and then you look at the actual number of people who've been infected, it's still very, very small. Uh, how, how will this affect Canadian business? Is Canada financially stable enough to endure this? How is it affecting Canadian biz? Well, it, it, some sectors are getting clobbered. I mean, uh, the airlines are just getting hammered. And all the industries associated with travel. Yeah. If the airlines aren't flying... People aren't going to the hotels. If they're not going to the hotels, they're not going to the restaurants, because a lot of restaurant meals are business travel. So those people are getting clobbered. I thought the government's announcement today, which hasn't received a lot of attention yet, that they're going to waive the one-week waiting period to apply for EI, was very, very wise. Because people, especially in in, uh, junior jobs, entry-level jobs, where they have no tenure, no job security, are going to be much less willing to self-isolate if they know that they're going to be struck off the payroll and not paid, and they've got no compensation, no cover. So I thought that that announcement that they can qualify immediately will give the people who are in those precarious jobs um, a greater willingness to uh, identify themselves to health authorities that they are sick, that they've got you know that they've got a fever or whatever, and uh, we want to get them out. I mean, anybody walking around with the coronavirus, or you know, we don't want them going out to school or to work. We don't want them on the street. We don't want them in the grocery store. You know, we want them to stay home. And uh, so, I, I thought that that announcement today—it's not going to cost a, an enormous amount of money, uh, but uh, having to pay an extra week because there's now no waiting period. But I thought it was very useful in allaying the fears of those people who would say, gee whiz, I've got a tough decision. I'm sick. I think I might have the coronavirus, but I'm terrified to report it because then they'll stick me in quarantine and then I can't pay my bills. Hmm. So I thought that that was, that was a, a good thing that they've done that. Joining us has been Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. This morning, the federal government announced that uh, it was set assigning, uh, setting aside $1 billion in a uh, coronavirus fund to help the provinces deal with all of this. Ian, thank you so much for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're, we're going to talk about the hysteria aspect of this and how it gets out of hand, how we keep the hysteria under control and actually move it forward to be doing something productive and constructive in all of this. On that note, an Italian ICU specialist is warning Canada and other countries to take the necessary steps to halt the spread of the virus. Uh, it, Adela- uh, Italy has now topped 10,000 infections, uh, 631 deaths. Uh, the entire country is on lockdown. We've certainly heard all of that. Uh, this is Dr. Giacomo Griselli. He describes the situation there as critical. As soon as you see this coming, you have to teach the population that the only way to survive is to change our behavior. So basically limiting the contact. The number of patients who become critically ill is so high and so concentrated in time and in space, which no health system, no matter how good, how efficient, how modern it is, can deal with it. I mean, the, the, the solution is not keeping opening new ICU beds or buying ventilators. This is the solution for people who are already sick. But the only, the only, the only way to survive this, the only way to avoid thousands of deaths, 
is to stop the spread of the disease. And this can be done only with the behavior of the people. All right, and a reminder that coming up uh, in just less than uh, half an hour uh, at 1 o'clock in the council chambers at Halton Region, there's going to be a joint press conference with Halton Regional Public Health and Hamilton Health Sciences and Hamilton Public Health uh, holding a press conference coming up at 1 o'clock this afternoon to discuss more of this, and we will uh, certainly carry this live. All right, we certainly talked about last week uh, some of the reaction to the coronavirus Uh, in respect to uh, people hoarding. I guess this started with the health minister who said people who are in um, the high-risk category should prepare for this and and perhaps have make sure they have their medications on standby, make sure that they are loaded up with the supplies that they need. However, it seemed that everyone took that advice, not just those that are in the the, the high-risk category. And the next thing you know, we started seeing a run on toilet paper and hand sanitizer, which to me is just absolutely bizarre. Uh, Well, nobody lines up for the flu shot. Uh, Now, of course, the flu shot does not cover COVID-19, but it does all the rest of the other flus, which, of course, uh, kill people as well. Uh, It's kind of odd the way we all act when this sort of thing happens. Let's bring in Dr. Penelope, uh, Dr. Penelope Arinstone, a director, MA in Culture Analysis, Social Theory, Associate Professor, Department of Communication Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University, and is with us now. uh, uh, Penelope, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So how do you explain, for example, the mad rush on toilet paper? As I used in the, in the preamble, um, uh, although the flu shot doesn't uh, cover the COVID-19, it certainly does all the other flus uh, of this season or certainly is, is, is good, uh, a, a good combat against that. Why do we not see people lining up for that, but yet they're lining up for toilet paper? It really does seem as though COVID-19 has captured our imagination in ways that other pandemics and outbreaks uh, simply have not. We can think back to 2009 and H1N1, and we simply didn't have people reacting in this way. I began thinking about toilet paper in particular, and what is it about toilet paper that is so compelling as a mode of preparedness in this moment in time? Are we just living roll to roll? Are we unprepared for all things? And it occurred to me that this was a way that people were actually expressing a desire to have some control in an unpredictable situation. We don't know how COVID-19 is going to uh, unravel or unroll. We don't know what the effects are going to have uh, on our on our healthcare system and so forth. But we are trying to shop our way to safety. Shop our way to safety. So is this retail therapy? It's, it is a form, I think, of retail therapy, but I think that it is a, a way that we have uh, really encouraged, uh, certainly since 9-11, of thinking about the ways that we can control and securitize ourselves and our homes. This idea of uh, even Ontario has a, uh, a program that is a 72-hour plan or kit that we should have these things in our house in case of any kind of emergency. So I think that this is just an extension of it. And uh, we have to remember that we are not the first ones who have been panic buying bog roll. Hmm. This started in Japan and Hong Kong very early on in COVID-19, and it has extended to us. We're simply following the cues that we're seeing on social media and elsewhere that tells us, well, we need to buy a toilet roll. And go to the uh, grocery store and you see that there's very little toilet roll. People will panic in that moment to try to prepare themselves. So, in other words, we don't know what to do, but we feel we must do something, so that's the best thing. Yes, indeed. And curiously, so you've talked about, uh, about the flu vaccine. 
curiously and oddly, even though the flu vaccine does nothing for COVID-19, there actually has been a spike in the number of people getting the flu shot. That's fascinating. How come we don't talk about that? (laughs) I think that it's out there, but there's saturation coverage about this particular outbreak means that it's really hard. There's so much noise in in what we are hearing. Uh, we're hearing concerns about, you know, panic buying on the one hand of, 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 of hand sanitizer and bog roll. We have on the other side Wall Street and a panic selling because of COVID-19. It's really hard to, to, to walk our way through all of the information that we're getting. This is uh, unparalleled in terms of the amount of information and how contradictory some of that information is. Should leaders be selling that more? That, you know, rather than going and buying an extra roll of toilet paper, perhaps it's worth getting a flu shot. Do you think we're selling that? Because I I don't think I've heard any leaders say that. Well, I think that that would be confusing at this moment in time, because, of course, a coronavirus does not at all respond to a flu shot. It's also a challenge that we have that they're while they're working on a vaccine, it takes six to nine months, even in the, the, the speediest of times, for a vaccine to be rolled out. So suggesting that they do something else uh, to get a vaccine might actually lead to even further confusion. Why uh, the, the products that we're seeing, uh, for example, toilet paper, even hand sanitizer, I mean, why wouldn't mm-hmm. you just buy soap? There was even some, uh, some stuff online about how to make your own hand sanitizer because there right. were shortages of it. It's like, why do people think that hand sanitizer is better than soap? Well, I think that we look at hand sanitizer, when you go into, let's say, a hospital situation, right. you see hand sanitizer there. Most institutions, including my, my university, have hand sanitizer stations on every floor um, immediately after you get off the, uh, the elevator. These are, this is an idea that we have, that, that somehow hand sanitizer is superior to hand washing. Yeah. Um, it certainly is faster. Uh, lots of people don't take the needed 20-plus seconds to properly wash their hands. Um, and it's amazing how, how, how many people don't seem to know how to wash their hands. Something so very, very simple. Uh, how do you explain the water bottles? I mean, it seemed to be toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and water bo- uh, bottled water. Why bottled water, of all things? It's almost worse than Y2K when you think about it. <laughs> Well, maybe we're, we're, we're just brushing off our, our survival kits from Y2K in some senses. Um, I, the bottled water situation is one that, that I find quite confounding because we do have safe municipal water. We, it is not likely in the case of an, of an outbreak uh, of this scale that, uh, that we're going to have to shut down the municipal water supply. But I think that this is, once again, where as people are thinking about their kits of what they need to have to be prudent, to be prepared at home, to be vigilant, that people are, are looking to those lists. And those, uh, you can say, the FEMA lists and other lists that we have in, in Canada, it includes potable water. So I think that maybe people are just going off of the, uh, the sort of habit of how is it you would prepare for, let's say, a tornado or let's say an ice storm where this is not the same thing at all. So in other words, put on clean underwear. That's a good thing to do, too. That's what your mother always said. Make sure you have clean underwear. You never know what's going to happen. I think generally a, bit, a good policy. There you but go. I think that we are in a context, and I, I think that I want to take us to you know, iTunes. People are watching Contagion. It has now become one of the biggest movies that iTunes has ever, has ever uh, had for downloads. The 2011 film where Steven Soderbergh himself said, you know, I want to do for elevator buttons what Jaws did for the beach. 
Now, let's take huh. a look at where we are in our panic right now. I would say that, that it, it's been quite successful in, in sort of in causing people to panic in a context of, of, of unpredictability. How will this change our behavior moving forward? I mean, we're hearing now, uh, keep keep away from everybody, uh, mm-hmm. no fist pumps, no no high yeah. fives, no certainly no kissing, uh, no hugging. Will this just keep going? It's just the safest way, you know, will we all be wearing masks from now on? Uh, well, I am not certain that uh, these panic moments have an ebb and a flow. They don't tend to stick for very long. And again, all we have to do is look back to to the behaviors that uh, in 2009 around H1N1, people were washing their hands, people were vigilant for a few weeks. It doesn't stick for some reason, and it's, I'm uncertain about this, and I know that there are social psychologists trying to figure this out. But I think that there are some, maybe some elements that will stick. In uh, in and around SARS uh, it, we, was the moment that we started actually coughing into our sleeves. Now that is a habit that has stuck. Is social distancing, elbow bumping going to stick? I, it, uh, that is uncertain. But I do think that we need to be vigilant. I need to, we think we, we need to be conscious of what we do. The biggest thing that we do that puts us at risk is touching our faces, yeah, touching our eyes, our nose, and our mouths with, with, with dirty hands or hands that have been touching other surfaces. The scale of the problem, there's a pandemic. The scale of the response really is something as simple as washing your hands. Uh, don't touch your face. I don't know. As soon as someone says, don't touch your face, immediately my face starts itching and I feel like the need to touch my face. Is this like, buy- know, right? is this like <laughs> buying wa- uh, toilet paper? It's absolutely, it is a compulsion. And I think it's a, you know, it is absolutely uh, reasonable and rational to prepare for the worst. Is it reasonable and rational to over prepare? And what is it about our psyches that sort of seems to, to follow uh, in these cues and toward panic and, uh, and irrational responses. So this, it is this, you know, the moment I say, don't touch your face, you feel like you need to touch your face. Yeah, it's like when you put a sign up, wet paint, someone wants to touch it to make sure that it actually is wet. <laughs> absolutely, um, absolutely. What about masks? That seems to have subsided. It seemed that toilet paper was, is that just because it's easier to obtain toilet paper than perhaps it's, it is masks? You have to go looking for them? <clears throat> well, masks have, have been sold out for weeks. And I think that it's safe to say. You uh, just don't have any, yeah. Yeah, on eBay where people are gouging you for, for masks and even masks that uh, don't actually meet the, the, the medical um, um, medical. Uh, necessities for for keeping uh, viruses away. One of the concerns we have with masks, of course, is that when people are wearing the mask, they actually may feel as though they are immune and still do those behaviors like touching their face around the mask. Um, And often people will touch their faces more often because they're wearing the mask. I think that, that the mask itself has come to stand in for some sort of idea of control, but I, I, I don't think it really does. I think it is, it's a symbol and it's a sign. It may be a sign more of insecurity than anything else. Uh, we're just getting word now that the World Health Organization uh, has declared uh, the novel coronavirus disease a pandemic. How does that change uh, oh, the psyche of everybody? goodness. Yeah. Okay, we've been waiting for this. Uh, CNN actually made the call a few days ago to, to start calling uh, COVID-19 a pandemic. Yeah. The concern that we've had, of course, they, 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 the um, um, people at the World Health Organization, they didn't want people to panic. And the word pandemic does sort of bring along all sorts of ideas. 
about the worst case scenario. And I know they were being incredibly cautious because in 2009, around H1N1, they were uh, they didn't exercise a lot of caution, and that created all sorts of problems. But once the World Health Organization declares a pandemic, a whole bunch of mechanisms fall into place. It uh, is like declaring a state of emergency, and it will mean that money will unroll, that p- pandemic preparedness plans will unroll, and that actually places like Canada, where we've been faring pretty well so far, that we're going to have all sorts of things that fall into place that will possibly protect Canadians more. Uh, we'll play you a real quick clip here of, uh, this is the Director General of the World Health Organization. Pandemic is not a word to use lightly or carelessly. It's a word that, if misused, can cause unreasonable fear or unjustified acceptance that the fight is over, leading to unnecessary suffering and death. Uh, why so wait to declare this, do you think, Penelope? And it, you were suggesting this is a good thing because it triggers the next stage. Yes, it does. And it actually is. Uh, it's actually heartening. Rather than, than leading to fear, we have to remember that we've been preparing for a pandemic for a very long time. Um, that People have been calling for a flu pandemic. They say it's once every 50 years. So we started preparing for this stuff really in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, 2003 was a dry run with SARS, and we blew it. But now we are actually quite prepared. And I think, in fact, the United Nations says that Canada is the second most prepared for, for a pandemic in the world behind Denmark. Hmm. So that should be heartening. But what this means is that all of these plans are going to kick into place, that money is going to be made of it, and that resources are going to be put to the places that we need them. Uh, so, ma- ma- sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but it's like I think it's like right in that statement. We we take the, just the gravitas of that statement by the director of the World Health Organization. I think that the tone that he took is actually one that's going to provoke more fear than maybe the word pandemic will. Hmm. Uh, thank goodness this is not a virus that is more fatal uh, or as yeah. fatal at SARS. Uh, as you said, and I, I wrote a commentary on this, maybe what this is all about, because many have said, well, it's not that serious. It is that serious. I mean, you get sort of both extremes here uh, of the right. issue. Um, maybe it's good that uh, we are going through this because it isn't as fatal as SARS, but if it was my goodness, we'd be in serious trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that, again, we, we, we have learned an awful lot. We live in a time where, you know, even being able to type the virus itself to start to figure out how it works, these are things that we can do really, really quickly in this day and age. We could not do it in the 20th century, certainly not as quickly. So I think, you know, rather than panicking, I think it's, you know, to be worried, yes, to be vigilant, yes, to be prepared, absolutely, particularly if you're in a high-risk group, but to really under try to understand how we're all in this together. The downside of the bog roll hoarding, of the, the toilet paper hoarding, is, of course, that we're leaving, making sure that there are certain people who won't have those resources that they absolutely need. Good point. Dr. Penelope Ironstone has been with us, Director, MA in Cultural Analysis and Social Theory, Associate Professor, Department of Communication Studies, Wilfrid Laurier University. Penelope, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Bye. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, sentenced to 23 years in prison for uh, his sexual assault assault charges uh, that he was convicted of. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Does this change anything in the movie business? What does this does this sentence uh, reveal? Well, I hope it changes something, Scott. What it reveals is that if Harvey Weinstein can go down, anybody can go down, and nobody, nobody can be, uh, everybody must be held accountable for any accusation. So it means that maybe more women will come forward with accusations. Maybe if there are other people who have been perpetrators in the past, they must be quaking in their boots. And it certainly, it certainly gives a big boost to the Me Too movement because, I mean, when was the last time we they had a big conviction? That would have been about with Bill Cosby, right? And this one is even bigger. So there's a lot of upside to people who have been bolstering this movement. Uh, I found it very odd, his comments. Uh, he told the court, this is uh, Harvey Weinstein, that thousands of men are losing due process. He's worried about this country. I, I think if there's anybody that got more due process, it was this guy. Uh, he also said he was confused by the rape case that put him in prison. Weinstein, who maintained that any sexual uh, activity was consensual, he said he had fond memories of the accusers. Oh, my goodness. I imagine that went over like a lead balloon. I can't believe his lawyer actually let him say that, yeah. but I think at this point they she must figure that he has nothing to lose because he's already lost it all. Uh, you know, she is also uh, absolutely, um, you know, apoplectic about this whole thing and can't believe, and actually still believes that Harvey Weinstein did not receive due process and that the fix was in from day one. Naturally, they will appeal because obviously that's what she's paid to do, but I think that his absolute and utter self-awareness speaks to, you know, a couple things. Did he even see any of these counters as anything less than friendly? Obviously not. He just thought it was due course of business. Mm. And his absolute lack of remorse in that, you know, I'm, you know, he says, I'm confused as to why all this is happening is actually shocking. It is, isn't it? And, I, and I'm sure at that point the jury said, well, I guess we got this one right, or the judge rather. What does this mean for the Me Too movement? Lots of talk, but, you know, has really anything changed since this all started uh, with the exception of this sentencing? No, I don't think anything has changed. I think that, you know, casting couch, cast, cast the casting couch is still uh, ongoing and seen as a path to stardom potential, potentially for uh, actresses who are looking to achieve that. However, I think that it may give uh, people pause as to, you know, maybe this is not the way to go. Maybe I can't leverage my power this way. But I think that we also have to look at this outside of the the movie industry. And you and I have often talked to, you know, what does this mean for other industries? Like the music business. Like the music business or like anything, anything, banking, tech, it doesn't matter. Where, you know, women have, you know, had to play either second fiddle or have been subjected to, you know, maybe verbal abuse or unwanted uh, sexual overtures just because, you know, people thought that they could get away with that. And I think that this puts more onus on HR departments throughout any industry to make sure that their employees understand exactly what is at stake here and what the boundaries are. 
Do you think this will make a difference in Hollywood or people will just be more careful about their encounters? Cover the I rear hope, end. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, old habits really die hard, unfortunately. Um, will it make a difference? I believe that it's certainly sending shockwaves because they're all thinking, well, if this happens to Harvey, it could happen to me. Uh, do I think that there will be some people who think they can still get away with that as long as there are willing participants? Yes, I do think that. But nothing is going to change from the fact that Harvey Weinstein is now a convicted rapist, that he will be serving 23 years in jail for his actions. Uh, do you think others will go down as a result of this? I think that there's a lot of phone calls being made and a lot of checks being written right about now, Scott. Uh, that being said, that doesn't seem to help in some cases. It just pushes the problem farther down the road. Will we see that? I think that, you know, sometimes if you, when you write a check, you know, they could buy somebody's silence. It certainly does. It, it, I think it certainly does help in the short term. But I believe that women are becoming more emboldened that they can complain about these cases and hopefully there will be some recourse. You know, you have to remember that there were complaints that were put forth to movie studios and to people in, um, you know, in, in the corporate suites, yet nothing was done about it because some of these people, including Harvey Weinstein, were seen as untouchable. Now, that type of thinking no longer prevails. So when there is a complaint and something is not done about it in due course, you know, it could be up to the person themselves who can take it outside of the company. That being said, is it not in the interest of the studios? Is it not in their best interest to get rid of anything like this so they're not dragged into this mess? Well, I agree, and that's what I mean by getting HR and legal together and lock down parameters and boundaries. You know, sometimes it could be even as saying, okay, here's a new code of conduct. Everybody has to attend these sessions. Everybody has to sign off on these sessions. So at least people are given the opportunity to understand completely so that there is, you know, there's no misunderstanding. Oh, well, I just thought that was teasing and I didn't really think that much of it. So that's why there has to be a broader understanding of what this means across the industry, but especially in the movie industry. Does this change our feeling about Hollywood? You know, I think for those who didn't think that this was happening, yes, I do think that it does change the feeling of Hollywood. You know, what we understand Hollywood to be is all glitter and sparkly and fabulous and red carpets, but there's a real seamy underbelly of it. And this has now come to light in a very, very big way. So for all those people who are pursuing acting and thinking that, you know, you work hard and you get what you want, obviously not necessarily so, that there's a different road to take. And hopefully, hopefully, they still don't have to follow that road. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Uh, Thank you, Alyssa, as always, for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, here's something we haven't heard in a while. SNC-Lavalin scandal. The Conservatives are saying that a Liberal bloc coalition has returned after an MP uh, blocks a study into the SNC-Lavalin scandal and and further investigation into that. Is it all politics or is it something that should be done? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, uh, Abacus Data, and has uh, advised uh, many of them over the years. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Should we uh, investigate more into uh, the Prime Minister's office, the Prime Minister's office role in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, or is this all politics and is it time to move on? Well, it's all politics, but that doesn't mean you need to move on. Um, 
Look, I, I, there are many people, I suspect, who still have questions about uh, how things were done around SNC-Lavalin. You will remember um, that Jody Wilson-Ravel said, you know, there was still more she wanted to say, I think, at, at one point, but was still governed by the, the confidentiality waiver of, of cabinet. I mean, sure, look, the opposition want this story to continue. They want to keep talking about it because it had political benefit for them before, so they're going to go back to that well again. Why would the bloc vote against this? Now, obviously, we know that SNC is one of the crown jewels of Quebec, but other, but but over and above all that, uh, they eventually did plead guilty. So why would they want to even be in the same sentence as SNC at this point? Because in Quebec, the stories looked at very differently, right? Uh, you just used the term crown jewel. That's what SNC is viewed as. You, you can remember, too, um, in the federal leaders' uh, English debate in October of last year during the federal election that Mr. Blanchette, the bloc leader, went after Scheer for going after this Quebec company, this company that had produced uh, so many jobs and created so much opportunity. In even, when they plead, even when they plead guilty, though? Oh, Mr. Blanchette had, uh, was wearing with pride the strength and size of SNC uh, in Quebec. Uh, I can't imagine he backs away from, from that particular position. So guilty pleas aside, uh, he would say he's on side with the you know, the average worker at SNC, and these were a few bad apples, and they've now been dealt with, but we need to stand up for the company and for uh, for the for the people who just take home their regular paycheck. And uh, so that's why they're in line with the liberals on this. Uh, they, they want the story to go away, too, because if it does continue, Scott, it does put them in a bit of an awkward position of, um, you know, siding with the government on one of its more uh, difficult issues. Um, does the average worker trump uh, or, or outweigh the rule of law? And what about those in <laughs> Quebec that don't work for SNC-Lavalin? Well, not in the calculations of the of the block, I guess. Um, look, uh, again, you've heard Trudeau parse that argument a bit too. That um, oh well, uh, those who who have been uh, who who perpetrated the crimes have been dealt with or being dealt with. We're about protecting the company and protecting the business. And that argument seems to hold forth in that particular province. So, uh, yes, the rule of law should trump it, but the, the liberals in the bloc would say the rule of law is not being trampled on here because uh, when it came to SNC rule breakers and lawbreakers, they're being addressed. How will this play in the rest of the country? Has the rest of the country moved on? Do they care? Yeah, I, I think the rest of the country has moved on. I, I think, you know, uh, you are covering it today. You've been covering it for a while. I think they're, uh, the real human story that's gripping people as they try to grapple with what it may mean to them personally is COVID-19 right now. Yeah. Uh, and that's not just the spread of the disease, uh, the, the economic impact of it, the stock markets, what's happening there. Uh, there's so many dimensions to this that SNC... Lavalin is, is now but a pimple uh, mm. on the uh, the buttocks of mankind. 
Uh, let me just close my eyes and think about that for a minute. Um, <laughs> what, about, <laughs> what about the Prime Minister's, uh, speaking of COVID-19, what about the uh, Prime Minister's uh, response earlier uh, in which uh, he's uh, put aside a billion dollars for the provinces to deal with this? Uh, certainly made us feel all, all, all warm and fuzzy. Are, are we in control of this? I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm not a public health expert. I, I, I don't know. I think what he's trying to do is show that he has a better handle on it than the Americans, because uh, Trump, of course, as you know, is being uh, carved up for not taking it seriously enough. So Trudeau's taking the other tact. Uh, again, we won't really know, Scott, un- until we sadly get a bit more into this uh, will was telling me you have uh, an apparent case now up your way yeah. uh, we haven't had any knock on wood in, in ottawa yet but i think as it gets into people's communities uh, they're going to determine how well served or not they are by public health authorities i think they want to get a sense that uh, this is the number one priority right now for the government because it's a scary thing. Maybe it doesn't need to be based on all the data, but nonetheless, I know at our office it's a topic of conversation. We've changed our practices. I'm sure you're doing that at the radio station. So it's something people are feeling and uh, and and learning about every day. Uh, it appears we are more prepared than the United States. Are we, or is that just... Uh... Uh, the public relations that's been put forward? Well, I think the public relations has been much better, so maybe it makes us feel like we're more prepared, and maybe that makes us more prepared. Uh, I, I, you know, I get the sense that people are taking some of the uh, instructions and suggestions seriously. I know we work in a business that has a lot of interaction with uh, with government, and I was told yesterday by some of my team that uh, some of our people were over in government offices and people in those those places now aren't uh, aren't uh, shaking hands and and making light of it and saying you know we have to be safe about all of that and i just see all sorts of practices that suggest where we're maybe being better better is listening to some of the preventive preventative advice that's being given i can't let you go tim without asking you about uh the wet sweat and pipeline situation the blockades that we saw uh for a, a few weeks there uh a couple of weeks back obviously that ended with Uh, a meeting between uh, the Canadian government officials and wet sweat and hereditary chiefs. Have we heard anything more on what's going on there? I had only seen one news story that suggested it wasn't a great deal, but I think that was driven by the opposition, and I don't know where it had had come from, Scott. Uh, It's gone very quiet. Everything, at least in the federal uh, radar in terms of public communications, is focused on on COVID-19. But if I do recall, the last time we chatted about this, there was supposed to be a two-week period. And I think this weekend marks that two-week period where we're supposed to hear more uh, from the chiefs and their community about uh, whatever arrangement was uh, was, uh, uh, determined. Do we know if there will be any sort of formal announcement or recognition of the passing of the two-week period? You would think they'd have to do something because uh, people like you just did are going to ask uh, because it was such a, a prominent thing. And, uh, you know, we will get through COVID-19, we'll be past this, this virus uh, outbreak uh, and the, the, the importance of, uh, of that, what happened uh, with the wet sweat and, and future relationships are still going to be front and center in Canada. So, yeah, I suspect there'll have to be some recognition of it this weekend.
Uh, we're certainly now hearing more from the elected uh, band council chiefs that are saying they're upset that they weren't represented. Is this digging the, uh, the is this creating more division as opposed to bringing these two sides together? Because again, this was about uh, the specific meeting about land rights and, and, and title and such. There's also the pipeline issue in there, which this did not address. But more importantly, uh, the leadership issue within the indigenous community about who makes the call, the elected band councils, the hereditary chiefs, or a combination of all. Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I get why they would be frustrated. Uh, here I have a little bit of empathy or sympathy for the government. It doesn't matter of their political stripe, Phillips, BC, NDP government. Yeah. You know, who are you supposed to deal with? Um, and and that, that that's not to say the hereditary chiefs don't have a legitimate claim, but if you're, you know, if the indigenous groups uh, have different models of representation and they've not made that clear to the government or the government doesn't understand it. If you're just having conversations about who you need to talk to and not talking to the people you need to talk with to get things done, that's extremely frustrating. Uh, we're still seeing block a, a blockade in Caledonia in regard to, uh, to this, saying that they support the wet Suetan uh, uh, people and such. Uh, however, it appears all the other blockades are down. Um, what does government do when we have this sort of thing happening? Well, I think again, you got to look at that uh, on a on on its case basis. If all the other blockades are down, that that would be viewed as a positive sign, and they have to find a way to get that down. And you know, Caledonia has been an area, as you well know, where mm-hmm. there have been different forms of protests and different actions before. Um, regardless of the broader global circumstances of of, of the indigenous uh, crown relations. So I think they need to look at that, again, as a separate thing and find a way through because it is probably very locally focused as oft the issues in Caledonia are. You've had your hand on these issues in politics for a number of years. What are yeah, th- you're making me sound like an old geezer Well, no, it just, at least, just at least, you know, a middle-aged guy like me. Uh, you have go. you ever seen the country in a situation where it is now um you know many look back and say well there's always problems we'll get through it you know i listen to john Cretchen talk about this it's not a big deal uh, how do you feel about where we are right now well I, the only thing that's somewhat akin to this and it was more localized to the east and west coasts of canada and that was when there was all the disputes around aboriginal fishing rights and there were boats getting burned, and there were RCMP and, and indigenous clashes in different communities, and it was a very volatile time, uh, but it was regionally restricted. Uh, I've never seen one that's been as nationally uh, prominent. And I think it's just, again, uh, a recognition that, hey, we can, everybody can have their prejudices or their positions and their like, but if we're going to get stuff done in Canada, we can't keep kicking the can down the road. Got to find ways to find solutions when uh, matters like the wet sweat and hereditary chief's dissatisfaction with the coastal link gas line come up. And again, I said this to you before, there might be some models that already exist there that stem from the work that was done after OCA that all got shelved in that Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples done 25 
25 years ago. Uh, apparently, there's some models in there. Why don't we look at them? Maybe they have applicability now. I, I know they might not be uh, digitized, but we can still flip through the pages of that massive report and have a read. Hmm. Well said. Tim Powers has been with us, Summa Strategies, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.